1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Premier David Eby lays out his plans to tackle housing affordability. Will it make a difference? Plus, from migrant worker deaths to giving rights to a nation where homosexuality is illegal to FIFA's corruption, we speak to a Vancouverite who spent five years working in sports management in Qatar. And why is West Vancouver Council stopping Indigenous land acknowledgement before meetings? Squamish Nation Council Chair Hal Salem joins us. Plus, robots in retail. Does customer service really improve? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Podcast. Let's focus on the story of the day. British Columbia Premier David Eby kicked off his first full week as leader by announcing new measures to fix what has become an old problem in the province, a lack of homes for both existing and expected residents. Now, his government's new Housing Supply Act, uh, will identify municipalities with the greatest need for more homes and will set new housing targets for those communities. That sounds more stick than carrot, that's for sure. Now, the province says it has already identified 8 to 10 communities where the new housing targets would be implemented based on census data and projected population growth. Now, the Premier says the province will work with municipal governments to set the housing benchmark, benchmarks, but ultimately it will be up to the municipalities to decide how to achieve them. Take a listen.
2: The second bill sets out a framework for how the province is going to work with cities to respond to this massive spike in our population. Uh, This framework uh, sets out a mutually agreed target to hit in terms of the kind of housing that municipalities already know they need because of housing needs studies that we've supported them to do.
1: Now, once passed, the Housing Supply Act would take uh, would take effect in mid-2023, and the 8 to, t- to 10 municipalities subjected to the housing targets would be notified after the law is enacted. Now, uh, a gentleman who has been following all of this, including the announcement this weekend, and of course it's been transpiring uh, today, is uh, Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. He joins us now. Hello, Richard. Yes, thanks for having me as always. Well, let's talk. Let's get through this. So first and foremost, do we know which communities they'll most likely be? <laughs> is it going to be Vancouver and Surrey based on just their population? Are we talking about uh, sort of more, uh, how do I call this, uh, perhaps more um, strong-willed or communities that in the end have been uh, just saying, you know what, we're going to be stubborn and not uh, hit our targets or haven't hit their targets?
3: Yeah, we don't know. And that's one of the big questions with this legislation is it is largely a blank check for the province to impose uh, housing on municipalities. And David E wouldn't describe it as much, but by not providing the information on what eight to 10 municipalities will be involved or how they will specifically be chosen based on metrics, it leads a lot to interpretation. And there are some concerns from... The UBCM, uh, UBC's municipality organization around the Union of BC Municipalities, around exactly how this will work. So they want to work closely with the provinces to ensure that municipalities, yes, they get the housing they want, but it's the types of housing they want. And David Eby has spoken to this in his previous capacity as housing minister, and he has mentioned some communities, including Oak Bay here in southern Vancouver Island and other communities, that have been more resistant. So that could include a place like Port Moody, where for a time they had a mayor who was less pro-development. They now have a mayor in Megan Lotz who is more willing to develop. So potentially we could see communities like that, or we could see the big communities, as you mentioned, working with Vancouver, Surrey, Victoria, places where, yes, there is housing available, but we've also seen issues around density and growth and finding space and growing up and finding places for people to live. So we just don't know yet. It will be based, though, on an evaluation of municipalities filling out their housing needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, municipalities will require to fill this out by April of this year. And then the Minister of Housing will look through those and do a better assessment of exactly what the needs are. Then the province will work at fulfilling those needs and Fast-tracking projects and finding development so they can speed up the process of of getting people into homes uh, that need them.
4: Will
1: the eight to ten be predominantly Metro Vancouver focused, or can we expect communities in the interior or the Island to also yeah. uh, have to go through uh, the ringer with uh, with government? I think it's going to be inclusive of the entire province, so we will see communities
3: outside of Metro Vancouver. We have seen this phenomenon, jazz. Over the last few years, that unaffordability has touched nearly every corner of the province. We're seeing uh, a rental rate of zero in Kelowna and Victoria. We're seeing housing pre- prices break records in Kamloops. Uh, this is a pressure point that is not just Vancouver-centric anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it extends far beyond Metro Vancouver. So the expectation is that there will be work done to approve housing and push housing through communities in all corners
1: of the province. Mm. Now, let, let, before we get to the strata rules, let's just talk about what wasn't announced, but what was in David Eby's housing uh, strategy when he was uh, uh, running for leader. His campaign promised to make secondary suites legal across B.C. That wasn't in today's legislation. His campaign promised to automatically upzone single-family lots to triplexes, or three build, basically essentially building three units on a single-family lot. Why do you think those two weren't part of this um, housing announcement today.
3: Yeah, no flipping tacks either. And I asked David Eby about this. And uh, Kevin Falcon is just doing a scrum now that I stepped away from the chat with you. And the first thing he said is he expected David Eby to come out with a cannon and instead he came out with a pop gun. (laughs) That it's not the sort of force of a housing plan that people had anticipated. I think one of the holdups clearly is working its way through legislation. And those things that you mentioned, the upzoning from one to three and the requirement for all municipalities to take on secondary suites was seemingly too problematic for legislation. And uh, municipalities are going to have more to say about their own powers when it comes to those two measures. The flipping tax is also complicated. Building tax policy is hard. It took the province a long time to put in place that speculation tax because of the repercussions around taxation. And so promise one thing, delivering something else. B says, though, that these things will be coming. He committed to them. He wants to ensure they happen. It's just about working those things through. And the last one is the $400 renter's rebate. We can't let them get off the hook on that, Jack. <laughs> 2017, they promised it. 2020, they promised it. I asked David Eby about it today and on Friday, and he said it's still coming. When it's coming, what it looks like, how renters can access it, we just don't know. So, you know, there are big promises. There would be huge changes to the way we do things and free up housing, but they're proving to be more complicated, I think, than expected when David E.D. promised it during the short-lived NDP leadership.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, the Premier also uh, also talked about uh, amendments to the province's Strata Property Act that would ban uh, rental restrictions and age restrictions in, in strata buildings. Uh, walk me through, uh, when, it comes, when it comes to this piece of the legislation, what does this mean?
0: Yeah,
3: so this is a big one and could open up, David E believes, up to 3,000 rentals, but it also could have some really deep and profound impact on those who live in Stratas right now. So right now, there's two main things here, a removal of the age restriction and a removal of restriction in general. So let's talk about that one first. So you may have a building, and for example, when we lived... Uh, in Vancouver, mm-hmm. on Open 16th, our building had a restriction where only four units in that building at any time could be a rental. A restriction like that under this new legislation, when passed, would be removed. So uh, an owner could rent out their property without restriction um, at any time. Uh, that would apply to strata buildings across the province. The other one is the age restriction. So right now in some buildings, there's an adult building. So every resident needs to be over the age of 19 or over the age of 18. Um, that will be gone. And, and the problem there was that, you know, if a young couple could own their uh, strata condo and have a baby. And they would be defined by that law, uh, the strata rules, they'd have to move out of that suite and those rules will change the one uh, exception here is for 55 plus buildings so the province is still protecting those senior specific homes and to that if a senior has to bring in a care rate to live with them full-time They can be under the age of 55. They won't be counted under this. But it's a pretty substantial change and and it's bringing some frustration from those in strata. As I spoke to Tony Giaventu, uh, he has been a spokesperson on this, an expert on this for a long, long time. He said the province instead should have targeted those short-term rentals, either through sites like Airbnb or through private rentals that that lead to huge turnover in a building Mm -hmm. rather than go after these rules uh, because he believes that this could cause significant disruption. I've also heard from a number of you know viewers and listeners saying, well, I'm worried about the state of my building, that if it becomes a renter only building uh, or a renter's building, what will that mean? I'm an owner in my building. I take ownership in it. It is my community and a renter may not have that same ownership. And the last point that you eventually brought up is it could drive up the prices. That now in one of these strata buildings, you're not just competing with those who live there who want to live there? You're competing with anyone who may see this as a potential property that they could rent. So there could be higher demand for a property like this, and could drive up the price, which is the opposite intention of what the, the government wants to do with legislation.
1: Well, I mean, the fact that he didn't bring in some of the other secondary suite rules, as I said, in three units per single unit, no flipping taxes, you said, perhaps he's going to do that after, but because one could argue what he's bringing in now will be disruptive to a certain degree. Uh, you you raise a very good example there where people who do own condo, condos they say, look, I take ownership of this place, renters come and go, and that's one of the reasons we have these uh, strata rules, and if that's all gone. Uh, that's going to be causing a lot of ripple, uh, ripple effects uh, as well. So this legislation, you think, will be passed this week
3: yeah so we just had a long debate in the house uh, around the extension of hours this week so the legislature will sit to nine o'clock tonight nine o'clock tomorrow ten o'clock on wednesday in order to get this legislation through and the bc liberals are saying well we should have been here last week we would have lots of time to debate this but it said david eve delayed getting sworn in well now they're going to be stuck staying up late <laughs> the next few days uh, in order to get this and the expectation is this legislation will pass uh, by the
1: end of the week. Wow. Well, that's that's fast. That's for sure. Uh, Richard, thanks for your time, my friend. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Jess. But let's talk about something that occurred this weekend. Two gun wielding robbers held up staff and patrons at a popular commercial drive cafe Sunday morning. Vancouver police say the takeover style robbery at Cafe de Soleil in East Vancouver happened at the height of the brunch run, leaving over a dozen people traumatized. It was brazen and something you would find out of a Hollywood movie, especially I was a bit taken aback, certainly, when I heard of uh, this news. Now, joining me now is Anthony. He works at Cafe de Soleil and was at the restaurant on Sunday when the robbery occurred. Anthony, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Walk me through what you saw and heard uh, as this occurred in your restaurant.
4: So um, the restaurant was uh, full. We're in full service, uh, deliveries and dealing with customers. Um, And about uh, early morning, approximately uh, between about uh, 10 and 11 o'clock, we have two gentlemen, two black gentlemen, uh, push their way into the restaurant, waving their guns, shouting that everybody should uh, uh, drop to the ground, and, um, which they did. And then they started accosting the customers and grabbing their cell phones and wallets, waving their guns, uh, threatening customers, and then um, it lasted just for, uh, I would say, less than a minute or two, and then they were gone.
1: Uh, did they uh, assault any of the uh, patrons or staff?
4: Um, yeah, one of the one of the staff members was slightly injured,
1: uh, and they're going to be okay.
4: They are. They are. Uh, uh, one of the gentlemen. One of the uh, gentlemen was holding a pistol and uh, a gun, and he poked him in the back of the uh, back of his head and uh, his uh, so just um, behind the ear, and that's slightly bruised. But other than that, there was there's no other injuries. And he's going to be fine.
1: Where were you uh, in the restaurant when these individuals came in?
4: I was working in the back of the house. I was in the kitchen. I could I could view everything that was going on through the pass-through window, so uh, I could see when they came in and uh, started uh, uh, accosting the customers and yelling and screaming at them.
1: Mm-hmm. And what was uh, how would you describe your staff and customers after the individuals fled?
4: You know what, uh, my my staff is absolutely awesome they're they're all healthy they're all well adjusted they're they're really good kids and our, our customers are the most amazing customers ever they've helped us survive uh, the pandemic uh, 2020 2021 uh, even now things are slowly getting back to normal but they've helped us survive uh, uh, through deliveries so our our place in the neighborhood is really solidified and and, and our customers are absolutely fantastic we asked them you know listen don't pay for any of the meals we we appreciate it we're sorry for what happened and yet they still left all this money on the table for us uh, you know it's like how do you how do you explain that you know, the dichotomy is just unbelievable between the horrific act and then the generosity of people sitting and and doing this kind of a wonderful thing
1: mm-hmm. You know, Anthony, when I heard of what transpired, and yes, we are used to a certain amount of crime in, in any city, uh, but the brazen nature of it, and generally we don't have, or maybe it's my perception, we don't see uh, people walking into restaurants with, with weapons demanding people's uh, wallets and their cell phones. Uh, it, it was just, I guess, the brazen nature of it that just um, it just shocked me when I heard about it over it's, the weekend.
4: It's It's absolutely... Horrifying. I mean, I know commercial drive has changed a lot, and but just to have this kind of an incident when there's so many people on the streets at that time of the day and just to have two people waving guns, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, it's, something's got to change.
1: Anthony, when you say that um, uh, commercial drive has changed a lot, what do you mean by that?
4: Well, I, th- I think, you know, I'm starting... Look, first of all, our, our restaurant's been here since 1992, and um starting in 2016 once the house prices started to go up people literally got priced out of the neighborhood here there's uh you know as an example one bedroom in the building that we're in you know rents for almost 1900 dollars you can't live on that so it used to be these young people essentially what we would describe as hippies living in the area they've all moved out so it, it's been this massive change since 2016. And it's uh, sort of just deteriorated. Uh, Grandview Park is just down the street, and there was two shootings, shootings in the Grandview Park. One person was killed. Number of stabbings on Commercial Drive. There's there's uh, graffiti. There's uh, robberies here all the time. Windows being broken. You know, so it's just things have have just literally changed, and and, and not for the better.
1: Mm-hmm. Is this a law and order issue, or is this uh, uh, more to do with mental health and addiction?
4: I don't think it's mental health in addition. I, I think it's a combination of everything. I think it's law and order as well as uh, just the general uh, degradation of, uh, you know, people having manners and learning how to behave in a society. It's just, uh, and the pandemic has just kind of exacerbated all of that. It, it's, it's become exceedingly, you know, people are exceedingly narcissistic, and, uh, and it's, it's just become this whole issue of, Mental and and just physical and just in general. How do you behave in a society? It's everything has changed so much.
1: Mm-hmm. What would you like see see done? Is this a question of that that that's about how, as you say, we behave? Perhaps how we're raised. Would you like to see greater police presence? Do you think we need more uh, services when it comes to housing and mental health and addiction? What would you like to see that would I... hopefully alleviate? Uh, when it comes to alleviate the issue of safety for you and your staff and your and your, and your customers, uh, but also the ability to run a business
4: Jazz, you know what? you 've covered all of these issues on your show. you know it comes down to small businesses trying to survive it comes down to uh, policing it comes down to housing it comes down to mental issues, especially on commercial drive people you know, just mental uh, with, uh, with mental issues yelling and screaming and throwing things. You see that on a daily basis. So it's just not one singular thing that you can kind of point your finger at. I think it's a combination of everything. And, and I don't know, we've just sort of taken our eye off the ball. And, you know, we've kind of not paid attention to all of these things. And now it's all coming back to haunt us.
1: Yeah. Well, Anthony, I know you've had a lot on your plate since um, what occurred over the weekend. I do really appreciate your time. Uh, today, to talk to us and all the best to you, your staff, and your customers as well. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Thank you very much. I appreciate your time as well. Bye bye.
2: This episode
3: is brought to you by Shopify. <coughs> Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell.
1: Well, after a spectacular opening ceremony which starred the likes of Hollywood actor Morgan Freeman and BTS star Jungkook, the FIFA's World Cup tournament itself finally took centre stage this Sunday after being overshadowed by the off-pitch matters during the build-up. Now, we'll have more on the on-field action at 5 p.m. on this show, but let's focus on the off-field challenges for a moment. Corruption scandal plagued FIFA world football's governing body after it awarded Qatar the tournament in 2010, though Qatari officials have previously strongly denied allegations of bribery, which has surrounded its bid. Now, for over a decade, and increasingly so, as kickoff neared, the pre-tournament buildup has focused on the country's human rights record from the death of migrant workers and the conditions many have endured in Qatar, as well as LGBTQ laws and the role of women in its society. Now, the country's last-minute ban of alcohol in the World Cup stadiums also made headlines around the world. So, what is reality in Doha, Qatar, and for that matter, how FIFA is run? Suki Sandhu has lived and worked in Qatar. He has also worked at FIFA's World Cup organization in South Africa in 2010, as well. He was the head of international events at the Aspire Zone in Doha, where many games and performances are being held during this World Cup. Suki, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, and Good afternoon to your listeners. Yeah, we've got lots to talk about. First of all, when did you move to Doha? I initially uh,
0: was asked to come and work the pan Arab Games uh, in 2012. And then from there, I I was asked uh, sometime later to uh, consider... the role of uh, head of events at Aspire Zone, which is probably one of the foremost uh, sporting destinations in the world. It's, uh, we host a number of international events and uh, sporting training camps, namely football training camps with the likes of Bayern Munich, Paris, Paris Saint-Germain, Real Madrid, etc. Mm-hmm. So about 30, uh, 30 training camps a year and then many international events. It could be uh, World Swimming Championships, World Cycling Championships. We've been on a number of um, of of upcoming games and matches, and we have three to four international friendlies every year.
1: Mm-hmm. So, in regards to sporting, you would attract a lot of big talent, big names. Uh, your impression when you moved, when you were there in Doha working and mingling with not just sporting executives, but also uh, with government uh, and the private sector. Give me a sense of how you as an outsider and many other outsiders, these, these cities in many cases, the local population is sometimes overshadowed by the expat population, South Asians, uh, people from the Philippines, keep people even coming from the UK, uh, different parts of the world actually work there. Your impressions of how expats and, and people were treated there?
0: Well, I, I, I first would like to say to your listeners, I think one of the reasons people like myself, born and raised in Canada, a person of color, um, you know, gra- look towards careers in places like Qatar is because in our own country, mm-hmm. um, leadership roles in sport aren't for people of my identity. Yeah. Um, it's a very exclusionary, uh, if we look at the stats speak for themselves in Canada, that people of color are not amongst those at the board level or at the senior administration or the governance level of sport in Canada. And we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. So when I go to a place like Qatar, I remember the first day, I still can never forget it. The first two days, uh, locals, I was on the 23rd floor of the Qatar Olympic committee, uh, building. And, uh, we, we had uh, been brought in from different parts of the world for venue operations for the Pan Arab games. And, um, A gentleman, uh, he's passed away now, Um, uh, Nick Brick from Calgary tapped me on the shoulder. He says, ah, you're from Canada? I said, yes. And he said, "Uh, what are you doing this evening? I wanted to show you around. So first question he asked me was very pointed. And Suki, how's it been so far? And I said, ah, it's been okay. He says, be honest with me. I said, well, uh, you know, it's been really strange that local people will not enter the elevator with me. And and it was very i was you know i was vulnerable with him i was very transparent and he mentioned over the next hour that you know indians and um philip people from the filipino community and and pakistani community are there's a class system and that is very apparent and you will see this and uh and that uh, these three categories of workers are seen at the bottom of the uh the caste system if you want to call it now for me uh, that was that hit me really hard, and he basically told me that whenever you meet a local from the next two weeks, you say i 'm Suki Sandu from Canada. Now, anybody who knows me that my identity is such an important part of me as a person.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: I will never shed that identity, I always stand for my identity, and that 's something we teach our children mm-hmm. so that was very hard to come to terms with, and I never Followed that advice. I'm proud to be Indian. I'm proud of my Indian ancestry, but at the same time, I am Canadian, and I had a skill set to bring. And then at the same time, I was ahead of events, which, twofold, I my identity. Most of the people in the president's office at Aspire Zone who are Indian were usually in IT. So there's microaggressions and stereotype. You know, you must be in IT. When I took my first took my office. Most of the people around me were expats who were British, um, Australian, uh, or other parts of Europe, but all white. So there was resentment on that end, that who's this Indian guy or this Canadian Indian who's, uh, he shouldn't be in this role. You know, he doesn't have the skill set. Mm-hmm. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a Eurocentric mentality that we we were the ones who created sport. You know what I mean? In Europe, or we are the ones who are the... Uh, the um, people who uh, safeguard it, yeah. which other, without understanding people's skill sets, and
1: but uh, you know, was that was that prevalent, though, Suki? Not beyond just uh, what you were doing, but when you go out and about on the street and and meeting people uh and not just your profession but you know filipinos or south asians uh, could even be people from places like egypt i know a lot of those folks work in, in the middle east as well in, in in those in the emirates specifically uh were they also sometimes uh, sort of viewed as 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 lesser people i think it there there comes a it, it's part of the parcel
0: it, and f- sometimes I, as you know me, I'm a very strong personality. And I would fight back. And sometimes you would be in meetings. If I brought forward a policy proposal uh, to change, say, or to lead, like if we had a Real Madrid versus Pierre St. Germain match and one of the local uh, would 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 propose my name, they would be uh, to lead it. And so I'd have 18 to 21 departments under me. But you could see the uneasiness, you know, and – So what you do there, you create allyship with some of the locals. That's very important. That's critical. Um, And the locals will usually trust yourselves more. But what they do, it's hypocritical in some ways or contradictory that they also then at the same time value those expats from those countries who are now criticizing Mm -hmm. the World Cup in Qatar. Those are the ones who were part of their leadership team at the outset
1: he so let's touch a little bit on the broader issue of Qatar itself. When they got the, um, when they won the bid, do you think it was a mistake for FIFA to choose Qatar? A, because of its size, and, and B, because of everything we've heard about now—migrants uh, who have died to build those stadiums, uh, its, um, its, uh, you know, treatment. Some have said of, of women, LGBTQ issues, all of those issues that we've talked about, uh, and its humans, right, human rights record as well. Do you think it was just a mistake on FIFA's part?
0: Yes. Let me be very clear. I think most people would agree that corruption has always taken place within FIFA and the allocation of the World Cup. I think this just got taken to an entirely different level of corruption. Uh, I don't agree with, though. Uh, I understand the notion for uh, taking the World Cup to new. I worked the World Cup in South Africa. Uh, that was really well planned. That was an amazing, that was a catalyst for transformation change in that country, in the sporting culture. I think in, in, with it, with, in reference to Qatar, this is, for your listeners, visually, this is half the size of Vancouver Island. And it's a, it's a population of 3 million. Only 14% is local. And now you're going to be bringing in 1.2 to 1.4 million visitors. Um, and with all the cultural and social issues on top of that. And if you look at their, you know, uh, match yesterday, um, they were, they, it could have been easily four or five, nothing. So I'm saying it doesn't, it's not a country that is, um, a footballing nation. Mm-hmm. It's not, doesn't not, did not have the infrastructure, um, for sport, uh, and it didn't have the mass, um, you need to be, I mean, the next World Cup will be in, in the U.S. and Canada. You need to have that broad mass for training facilities. It's going to be absolute chaos now when, um, uh, you know, all of the fans do arrive. It's, It's. I mean, the fan. and then the decision in the last two days to, um, on the liquor, you know, if they would have stayed with selling beer outside the stadiums, then the fan zones, it wouldn't have, Put more uh, pressure on the fan zones. Now you're saying the fa- the fan zones are the only place to buy beer. You're dupli. So you're getting fans going there, but you're also getting spectators who just want to have a beer. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You, du- you could have divided that crowd up, um, and you know, twenty to thirty thousand fans could have just gone to a uh, a fan zone outside of the stadiums rather than the the. Um, so th- I think it wasn't the right decision. It was. I mean, I had when I was in business development. We had many projects that were brought before us from that were very suspicious, and um, uh, rarely were they approved by myself. Um, uh, and you could see there was, a, a, you know, something going on in terms of money allocation.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to just touch a little bit on, uh, there's been some comments from uh, Qatar's that look, these are mostly allegations made from people in the West, Western nations, Western citizens. Um, I want to touch a little bit on, and because we've co- covered Hockey Canada here, we've co- covered other uh, sports-related issues on this show, to the point of where, you know, the Vancouver Canucks are hiring women, uh, finally, for their executive team uh, on the hockey operation side as well, which is great to see. Uh, um, in the end of the day, though, uh, while we make these allegations about Qatar and to a certain degree of FIFA, and it's a, it's a it's sort of a different conversation, but when you look at our own country... We've got a lot more to do when you look at, as you said, the executive teams of most of these governing bodies, whether it be hockey, whether it be basketball, uh, whether it be football, whatever it may be, most of the executives do you, you do see in one of our former contributors, John Jang, has brought this up. It is predominantly still, um, you know, the sports is predominantly white at the end of the day in this country. It's players may not be. Certainly the diversity of the city is we, we've reached, we're not hyper a but when you look at management in this country of our sporting bodies, it is not remotely as as diverse as it needs to be,
0: Jazz. That's a very good question. We cannot be hypocrites here. In the in the bid United bid document, in page twenty one, it was very explicit in their commitments. For twenty twenty six would be a, a catalyst for cultural transformation of sport. That fifty percent of board composition and, and committees would be diverse. Fifty percent of management roles and senior leaders, leadership roles would be. Re, re, uh, diverse, um, and, uh, as well as establishing transparent benchmarks. None of that has occurred. Mm-hmm. And Canadian Soccer Association, along with every other national sporting organization that is publicly funded in our nation, has remained white for the last hundred years because we've had a Eurocentric uh, vision in sport governance in Canada. The, Im- the immigrants that came a hundred years ago, that is the same lens and focus that is at that has remained in power. And the immigrants such as uh, are seen with fear, a sense of insecurity, that we maybe that this, this European mindset knows best about sport. Well, that's got to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been working with some of our local MPs, uh, Parm Baines and George Hall. I'm actually doing my, my capstone research on the DEI reforms in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. They are creating pathways. They've understood that the status quo is not good enough. And, you know, that they've acknowledged that, that their coaching pathways, their player development models, their board government is, is, is lacking diversity, equity, inclusion. So they've mandated it. They've legislated it. Now, that advocacy has to start with our members of parliament and our MLAs. They can't be passive on this. They've got to pull these rogue, uh, whether it's hockey Canada, and gender equity is not good enough yeah. because that that... that just keeps the same people in power. It doesn't look at the intersection of race and ethnicity. Um, So people of color, we are, if you look at it, 2026 in the GTA and in Vancouver, people of color will be almost 50% of the population.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to have to stop you there, my friend. We've run out of time. I really appreciate uh, you making time for us to talk a little bit about uh, Qatar, but also uh, change that's required here in our uh, sports uh, governing bodies as well. Thank you for your time today. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much, and uh, I, I hope you continue these conversations because they're, they are much needed. This awareness is required.
1: Well, if you live in Vancouver, you've probably heard this statement read at the beginning of a ceremony or event you've attended. It goes like this. I would like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and musqueam Nations, and of course there are many other First Nations in and around Metro Vancouver whose names are used. Now, this phrase is heard at government and corporate gatherings. Well, recently, West Vancouver Council decided to no longer start meetings with a spoken Indigenous land acknowledgement. New West Vancouver Mayor Mark Sager says future land acknowledgements would be printed on agendas and not read out. Well, joining me now to discuss this new policy is Squamish First Nation Council Chair Hal Salem. Hal Salem, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Your thoughts on this, first and foremost, Uh, when West Vancouver Council made this announcement, or at least when you heard of this announcement, what was your reaction?
2: It was a bit, I think, surprising and shocking to myself and I think other uh, leaders of the Squamish Nation. Uh, It was a decision that didn't come through any sort of consultation or collaboration with the Swamish Nation. And I know in speaking to uh, leaders of some of the other First Nations communities, like the tsleil Nation and Muscoom, there wasn't any conversations there either. And I think for us, it's a bit of a surprise just because we've spent many years building a very positive relationship with the District of West Vancouver. And the lack of engagement with us, I think, came as a bit of a shock. But also, I think, a concern that this type of decision is representative of uh, larger decisions that might, you know, give us the the sense that maybe things are drifting backwards instead of forwards. Um, But it really, I think, it speaks to what kind of relationship do we want to have as two governments. And I think it's been a concern for us from that lens. Uh,
1: In your mind, why or uh, indigenous land acknowledgments, uh, which are to be read out, why are they important in your
2: mind? I, you know, I really do. I appreciate that question because it is. You know, I think for many people who might hear them or see them, um, you don't always get an explanation on on the reason why they happen. And you know, for a lot of uh, decades, you know, here in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, there was a time period when there was a lot of you know outright denial. Of Indigenous rights and, and Indigenous title, there was an era where there was sort of active um, policies to try and undermine uh, our our rights. And so during that time period, you know, there was a lot of our elders and leaders at the time who would, you know, be, would stand up on a stage or on a platform or have a microphone and say something as simple as "This is Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil territory," and that was seen at the time as very uh, radical. That it was very challenging of the sort of normal uh, thought at the time. And over many generations, it became less and less of a radical thing. It became way more normalized. And I think through a lot of struggle, whether it's through uh, court battles with the Supreme Court or the inclusion of uh, Aboriginal rights within the Canadian Constitution and many other uh, victories that have taken uh, a lot of work, we've arrived at a new era where saying something like that might not be seen as radical or might be seen as quite performative. But at the same time, it comes from a tradition that I think has helped us educate many in the public around the history of this land, the people of this land, and the, pe- the rights of the people of this land that, that I think are really, really important to understand. Because when we think about Canada and what makes Canada so amazing, it's the fact that Canada actually has carved out uh, a recognition of Indigenous rights and that there is active work um, to build that bridge between the Indigenous and non-Indigenous societies. And so I think... Land acknowledgements are intended to be an entry point to that relationship. They're not meant to be the end of it, um, but they are important in that sense of helping educate the public and demonstrate a sense of value for that relationship with Indigenous people.
1: So in this case, basically that acknowledgement will be printed on future council agendas, just not read out. How is, in your mind, why is that important for that particular land acknowledgement to be spoken rather than just written?
2: I think that there's two challenges. The first is that a decision like that was made um, kind of unilaterally, without any consultation with, with our nation, that... When the District of West Van first introduced this practice, that was done as a result of conversations with the nation to advise them on how best to do that. Um, and so has many other municipal councils, provincial leaders, federal leaders done this uh, over the last decade too. So the first step is uh, that there was no conversation. I think the second piece is the decision to unilaterally change it from a sort of spoken or verbal announcement
4: to more of a written.
2: Really begs the question of what's the intention here and why? Why make this change? What is it that they're hoping to accomplish. And, you know, I think for us, it becomes a concern that there's going to be a sort of a a watering down or a retraction of the practice, which starts to raise concerns around what other things are potentially going to drift backwards or slide backwards. And are we going to go back to an era where there wasn't a a positive relationship? And, you know, with the District of West Strand in particular, there is a really difficult, dark history where past, you know, mayors and councils were quite um, prejudiced towards the Squamish Nation in in terms of our dealings, there was a lot of challenge in that relationship, and we've come a long way from that. And so I think there's a particular sensitivity that we've had a troubled relationship where we really want to build a positive working relationship. And this sort of uh, choice, I think, begs a lot of questions around what where does it lead and why, why do it in this way when we are trying to build a positive relationship?
1: I mean, in the end of the day, you still have to work with this council, whether it be on land issues or other uh, issues that do come up from a municipality to a First Nations community. Uh, do you think this could impact that relationship in, in regards to you know specific on-the-ground projects that, um, that you may be working on?
2: Well, you know, there is an interesting aspect to that. There's two uh, pieces to it. One is uh, the Musqueam, Swamish, and Clayton Nations uh, reacquired lands in the District of West Vancouver a number of years ago that we are we have been working with the District of West Van on redeveloping for uh, building some economic opportunities for our communities, and that's happening uh, on former federal lands in West Vancouver. And that's a project we've been working very positively on with the district staff and and councils to move through their policy processes. And we are using the municipal processes uh, to achieve that. But on the other hand, uh, the Squamish Nation also plays a role as a regulator within the territory. We have, as I mentioned, you know, uh, aboriginal rights are recognized within a law and within jurisprudence. And so that affords us a lot of influence over uh, decision-making on various projects that might happen, whether it's next to or with crown lands within a district, or whether it's major uh, sort of infrastructure projects that also happen. And so there's also a lot of places where the nation has our own regulatory processes that we have to engage in, where we have to give sign off and authority on. So there's a lot of places where we have influence, um, but it really, when we try to work with other governments, we really try to work through it as based off of mutual respect and a positive working relationship. And we've done this, many, many times with many other municipalities and provincial and federal governments on a number of projects. And we really believe that we can achieve a lot of positive things for our communities when we work together. So it's, you know, there's a lot of good work that will continue to happen and we'll work our work through that. In our letter that we sent to the mayor and council over the weekend, we, we expressed our displeasure at this choice, but also that we request a council-to-council a council meeting so that we can come together, uh, get to know each other and, and build that relationship and perhaps use this as a bit of a teachable moment um, on how we can work together.
1: I mean, in the heart of hearts, and certainly listening to you and the letter itself. I mean, the best scenario you would like to see after your conversation would be a reversal uh, of this particular policy.
2: Yeah, I think it would be good to to continue. I mean, the, the continue on with the practice that was previously done. That was a practice that was developed. Uh, after conversations with the Squamish nation, the practice that's been implemented at the uh, city of North Vancouver council meetings, just sort of the North Vancouver council meetings, even Vancouver city council meetings and many others. Um, but there's many other important work that can continue to happen as well. So I think it would be good to resume the regular practice and then, then let's have the conversation around, you know, what, what can we do beyond this? And I, you know, I've seen comments in the media from the the new mayor around um, wanting to do more around reconciliation and some talk of even getting land back to the nation for for cultural use so i think that there's lots of positive things that could come out of this um but it, it, it would help to show that there is a, a learning uh from this as well.
1: well Salem, thank you for your time once again i really appreciate your conversation and and uh, your thoughtful comments thank you so much thank you Well, in Japan, robots are restocking shelves of many of the country's 24-hour convenience stores. The robot they use is called TX Scara. It has a hand on one end of its mechanical arm and restocks shelves uh, correctly, using artificial intelligence and cameras to figure out what beverages on the shelf need to be replaced. The robot, we are told, can restock up to 1,000 beverages a day. In Europe, Walmart and Kroger are reaping the benefits of robotics by launching an autonomous fleet of 10,000 plus cleaning robots. In fact, in the United States, robot labor is growing amid the country's own labor shortage. Robot orders for workplaces increased 40% during the first quarter of 2022 compared with the first quarter of 2021. Now, Many observers say the pandemic has triggered a fundamental reset of retail with new technologies including robotics, machine learning, and of course artificial intelligence. Uh, Vikram Sachdeva is the CEO of Seed and Stone. It's a cannabis store chain with six locations in BC. Recently his company started a trial using a robot he joins us now rickham thank you for joining us it's good to be here thank you for having me oh our pleasure so let's talk a little bit about robots and robotics um you've had uh, a robot in your store correct me if i'm wrong for a couple of months now yes yes we uh,
5: we moved in um, the robot about uh, six weeks back
1: and how yes. has the experience been so far
5: um, the experience has been uh, quite positive. The customers are seeming to love the unique experience that they're having with this robot, uh, and it's it's fulfilling the intent we put it there for. It was a first in market uh, kind of a first mover status. Uh, but just before I before I comment any further, I would like to recognize the Songhees First Nations as they are our partners in Seed and Stone, and uh, I really thank them for being. A part of our organization and that's why innovation is so important for us and hence the robot is there mm-hmm. to put light on how first nations are doing business in this industry so um,
1: in regards to the robot itself if i'm a customer what would i see how would i interact with the robot what can i do
5: so so the robot is um is basically there currently it's not there to replace any tenders or or our staff because education is very key to this new industry and we want to spread the word The robot is there more for greeting and guiding customers, enhancing the customer experience, engaging and interacting with the customers in a way that is unique uh, so that if there's a lineup and uh, customers want to get some education, they can go on the screen and they can look at the menu and they can uh, read about different products and it is engaging. There's a screen at the front of it which tells you about the promotions. Uh, It also assists the staff because if they're busy, then the robot takes some of the attention of the customer off of them. It guides the customers throughout the store if you can put in and say, look, you're looking for pre-rolls or you're looking for edibles or you're looking for drinks, and it'll guide you there. Uh rest of the uh, – then the staff takes over and you have the knowledgeable staff giving all the information to our customers. So it's an added benefit to our staff and to the organization as an innovative product.
1: Now, so. cannabis is heavily regulated, somewhat argue even too re- regulated uh, based mm-hmm. on some of the headlines recently. The robot itself, you cannot place an order through the robot, right?
5: Well, we are we are looking at the nuances of how we can do that. The thing is that the robot does have the capability where you can go on the screen, the menu is there, you can place an order, and it goes directly to your uh, to your POS system. The fact is that even as a prudent uh, employer, I would want my bartenders to have that interaction and provide that product into the hands. The regulation does not allow for a robot. To be handing products, we have to do an ID check, and we do a whole bunch of different things. We want to make sure we are compliant. So this is an is an experience, and answer, and a unique proposition for a retail store, mm-hmm. and that's why we have it there for now. And you know,
1: what compelled you to look at a robot? I'm I'm curious. Uh, I know my family and I were traveling. Um, uh, I think we was through Surrey uh, many months ago now, probably eight or nine months ago, and we went to a restaurant, and uh, I recall the, the server taking our order. Uh, it was really good, and all of a sudden, the delivery came by robot, and then the, the, the individual yeah. in this case, the, the small business owner, had two of them. Yeah. It was just a problem of a lack of labor. Uh, in your case, yeah. what yeah. compelled you to say, look, I'm going to test out a robot?
5: Yeah, I, I had the chance of meeting uh, the leaders of the GreenCore Robots company, and um, you know they they get, told me about this proposition. And being a partner with the Songhees First Nations and trying to be innovative and creating a pathway for all First Nations to take part, you have to be innovative and you have to get recognized for doing things that are new in this industry. The industry is really young, mm-hmm. right? So I want to I want to create a unique proposition. We are all selling the same products in our store. You know, the price points are almost the same. The government has it very heavily regulated. So how do I differentiate my store from another cannabis retailer? The, I look at innovation as, an, as, a, as a leader in this industry and creating a pathway for the First Nations is important for me. So keeping that in mind, I always look at technology for making the experience of my customers better and giving us an edge over our competition to say that, look, this there's a unique Um, experience at this store Mm -hmm. so that's what we brought that's what brought me to the robotics of things we were we also did something in the metaverse and we are looking at technology in in multiple ways even with our payroll systems and all of the systems we do look at technology in helping us scale the business
1: Uh, I'm very curious um, you know in Japan you have robots restocking shelves in convenience stores Uh, in Europe Walmart and Kroger to very large retailers are using cleaning robots to clean their stores in the evenings. Um, the logistic industry is looking at sort of um, innovative last-mile delivery services using robots and drones. Uh, we had a, a retailer here in the downtown core in the pizza business, and they were testing out basically a, a, a robot or at least a, a computerized piece of machinery that would actually you know, deliver to your condo or to your home in the downtown core. They were testing it out a few months ago. Uh, do you see a time where it, the robot can replace employees um, because of labor shortages, and we're heading in that direction?
5: Um, my background is from the food industry as well, restaurants. Um, you know, so I, I do see a place for robots. I don't think, at least in the near future, that they would be replacing, say, servers or or or, or bartenders because our retail business is very, uh, especially in the cannabis business, is very uh, butt-tender focused. Like The education is really important. Uh, uh, them understanding the new products. There's a lot of new users that are coming into the industry. So for us, uh, I would, personally in my business, I would not replace my butt-tenders with robots. Uh, they, they can be an add-on. But for, for other industries, I do see a, a potential like in the grocery industry or in the restaurant industry, there is definitely a potential for Due to the heavy uh, labor shortages, uh, I think that is an option all retailers should look at. Uh,
1: and how much of this has just been driven, do you think, by a lack of labor, by COVID and needing to innovate? How much of that has spurred some of this conversation? Uh, it,
5: definitely has, uh, it definitely has been an important aspect. The labor shortage, we all know, is very real. Uh, COVID also helped. Uh, I mean, caused a problem with the, with immigration and bringing the people coming into the country. So I know the the country runs on on foreign labor a, a lot of that time. So you know there has been massive challenges in filling positions and things and finding people to work, uh, and especially with the with the the times that the economy is going through. And, you know the wage rates and things are, are becoming very difficult for retailers to manage their small businesses. Um, so I, I do see that, um, you know, both COVID uh, and the economy are, are, are a big factor in making prudent business owners look at different options. Because, look, if I have two bartenders and a robot and he can help greet people while my other tenders are busy, uh, it just adds to the experience and helps them make their lives easier. So I'm looking at it from a very different point of view as making… Uh, as an added help to my bartenders. But replacing them at this point is not not a mandate for us. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, Vikram, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating topic, and it'll be very interesting to see where all of this technology takes us in five or ten years. Thanks so much for your time today.
5: Yeah, Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate your time. Thanks.